The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Well, give God praise, everybody. Give God praise. Let's put our hands together. I just don't want to take advantage of us praising God together. Stand to your feet and give Him praise. Stand to your feet. We're going to get an uncharacteristic. I know some of us are Presbyterian here, but God is good. This is the last day of worship in 2017. Put your hands in the air and know that He is a God that has brought us from nowhere to somewhere. And we're not going into 2018 as if it's the last, but we're praising His name for what He has done and what He will do and what He will continue to do for our church. And I am thankful for that and blessed to be here. Y'all may be seated. I just wanted to get y'all started and make sure y'all are awake this this morning. They have uh, taken some of my preaching time and so since we don't have a watch night service, I think I can preach for three hours. uh, I can preach for three hours, Aaron. Uh, Your announcements was like six hours, but uh, I love Aaron and she's my sister. She knows it. God is so good and as we've been going through this series, we've been trying to unpack throughout the Advent series what it means to live a life that is God glorifying. But not only that, we're trying to, we've been trying to unpack the idea of what it means to see God's glory. And we have laid before you somewhat of a paradox. And that paradox of what we've been trying to unpack throughout this series is that God has glorified himself through weakness, through rejection, through lowliness. We've seen a great picture of the gospel. Uh, we've seen Richard and also Daniel Harris preach a sermon on weakness that gave us a great, a great picture of what glory through weakness looks like. And we preached also about glory and rejection and how we were rejected like Christ. And Christ was rejected in order to adopt us. And then Terrence reminded us that God... Uh, is, he doesn't play about the pride thing and that we must be meek. We must be holy and there's glory in that and that pride is like a, is like too much cologne. I remember him saying that and using that illustration. And P- Richard gave us uh, a clear uh, understanding of Christ's coming, uh, to having come to this earth and us looking forward to that on Christmas Eve in our gospel, uh, in our, in the gospel presentation. We will continue that series this, uh, morning and we will be in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 21 through 28. Please hear the reading of God's word. For that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and and suffer many things for the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and begin to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, de- let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death. This is the word of the Lord and God's people said. Thanks be to God. Y'all say thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, because we know that you are one who is holy. We know that you are one who is righteous. But you came in a manger to a teenage girl. Humiliating yourself so that we may glorify you. At times, Lord Jesus, that is far beyond our imagination and comprehension. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to understand how your word becomes alive in our lives and in our and how we can live them out each and every day. Hide me beneath your cross. Move me out of the way to speak to your people. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. And God's people said, Amen. So We've been trying to explain and demonstrate that God's glory, that the glory of God is mundane. It in fact is to be in love with the mundane, the process, in love with the constant, in love with just the sustainability of being present. In fact, we understand that glory, we should throughout the series, it doesn't look like success. It doesn't smell like success. It doesn't taste like success. It doesn't feel like success. That's not glory. In fact, the opposite of it is not to try harder. It is not to chase every dream. It is not to drive for substantial wealth gain or to alleviate pain and poverty. This isn't what it is. And because it isn't, we must trust in God more. Because the less we try, the more that we understand God intervenes according to his providential sovereignty in our lives. Many of you may argue and say, well, we have a level of free will or human responsibility. That's an argument for another day. However, I agree with you. I think it is both and in understanding that we have a level of human responsibility. We're still empowered by the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying to you is, is even though that we have a level of human responsibility in terms of pursuing God, we understand that it is His Holy Spirit that instructs us, empowers us, and guides us. Because we don't have an innate desire to pursue God. We have an innate desire to pursue success. We have an innate desire to try to achieve. We have an innate desire to glorify ourselves. But the picture of glory in which we have been trying to show is that glory is not about ourselves, nor is it about our strength. It is about the one who strengthens us and guides us through moments of suffering, through moments of pain, and moments of being a part of the body of Christ. And in the mundane. Now that doesn't sound sexy. That doesn't sound fun. 
That doesn't sound glamorous. But I think our text affirms this absurd idea that there could be victory in defeat. I think our text affirms the the paradox that there is actually glory. Uh, We can change that proposition to in losing. Instead of of losing, it is glory in the fact that losing something actually means something. Far beyond what we can comprehend because oftentimes our desire of success without struggle is the wrong idea. We ought to desire struggle in order for it to determine our success. And that struggle is in Christ. That struggle is with the body of Christ altogether. And we also must fall in love not with the results, but we must fall in love with the process. And you may say to yourself, Mike, what are you saying? Well, in our ingrained in our theology, this is a part of sanctification. This is a part of glorification. This is a part of being united with Christ as the body of God. That we know that we're progressively being sanctified. So one day we may appear and look like Christ. That's what we ultimately want to be like. We want to be like Christ. And so in that, we understand our text shows the process and describes what this process that we ought to fall in love with is called discipleship. Discipleship. And we see clear, a clear call to discipleship, which requires Christians to lose their lives in order to find it. That is strange within itself. How do we lose something? How are we supposed to feel defeated? What are we supposed to give up in order to have this victory? That does not make sense. But I think this morning that we can go ahead and try to unpack in some aspect these next couple verses of what that may look like for our lives as disciples of Christ. And if I want us to hang our hats on anything this morning, if I want you to take a tagline this morning is that Christ calls us to discipleship, not for our own glory, but to reveal his glory. If we were to leave, if we go into 2018, I, I want you to know that Christ calls you to follow him, not for your glory, but to reveal his glory. The first point and one point only is this, is that the call to discipleship requires sacrifice. The call to discipleship requires sacrifice. Look at our text. We see it when Jesus says, deny yourself. Uh, We understand that this sacrifice, first of all, is not one that we would would love to do. I I, I worked at a place before I went to to seminary and I quit my job and I I was working in banking. And then I worked for a place called Sunshine Ministries. We had a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. And in the evenings, we had a homeless shelter, which we had 44 men come in um, and sleep. And they pretty much could live there for their entire lives as long as they came every night. So I engaged in various conversations with uh, brothers that came off the street, and some were uh, addicted to drugs, other were retired veterans, and they just had no, way, no place to go. You had other guys who were getting disability checks or SSI checks, and this was pretty much home to them. They knew that they would get a meal. We always preached the word at chapel, and that they would go to bed. 
Uh, they knew that. They had that every night. And so I came into contact with various different individuals. One evening after I had preached chapel, uh, and this was a place where you had to be ready in season and out of season because we would all, we would have volunteers come in, but if they were not the one, if they didn't show up, then we had to preach. And so it was just several times I was just pulling random words out of nowhere. Just, <laughs> just yeah, uh, but what? Uh, after preaching this chapel service this particular time, one gentleman walked up to me and said, Mike, if I can give up smoking crack, child pornography, and drinking alcohol every day of my life, I, I think I can get my life together. His addictions actually were not so overwhelming or captivating to me. What captivated me the most is the fact that He knew what he could do to get his life together. He knew if he denied himself the pleasures of his heart and the things that he was held captive to, that there was actual liberation on the other side. That if he denied himself the the pleasures of his heart, he can actually feel a sense of what it means to have a life fulfilled. I think that we can all relate to that. I think that each and every one of us know that if we simply were able to deny ourselves the pleasures of our heart, whether that be money, whether that be the glory of ourselves, whether that be something in terms of uh, uh, lust and pleasure, you may be a single individual and you don't want to get married because you continue if you're a guy, you, you're able to get girls and you're able to live a life that is flash and cash, but you know there's a conviction in you to, to walk and know the Lord. You may be an individual individual who uh, is in love with money and you don't want to give it up and you want to continue to pursue uh, you may be an individual who is just so mad at the world that you want to take from other individuals see the point is you know what is going on inside of you and the war and the battle but you can't fight it yourself and so Jesus says, deny yourself in verse 24 if anyone would come after me let him deny himself Why is this important? Because we see that Jesus is setting this up simply from verses 21 to 23 where he's predicted his death. And this is a transition in his ministry. Jesus has gone from talking to crowds and individuals who who have uh, wanted to hear about the kingdom that is coming. Now he turns his focus and this is what he says, this is why the writer says from that time in verse 21, he turns his focus particularly to the disciples. If I were to say it modern day, it is particularly to the church, to the believers, those that are following Christ. And what he does is what he is trying to expound is, is that his disciples will ultimately have to go through the same suffering. But that individual, Peter, who proclaimed and made that huge declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and his Messiahship was to reign, he was the same one that Jesus called to be the rock of the church that was the stumbling block of the church. Because what does he say when you look at verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside after he predicted his death. He said, far be it from you, Lord, never shall this happen to you. And then Jesus says to him immediately, but turn, uh, but, but he turned and said to Peter, be, get behind me, Satan. I, I want to take a short pause to the fact that Satan can use or try to deceive anybody. 
right? It, it doesn't matter uh, who you are. He can use your wife. He can use your husband. He can use your cousin. He can use your girlfriend or boyfriend. He can use your neighbor. He can use your dog. I know my dog makes me want to go crazy a lot of times. But Satan is so deceptive that he can use the very individual that Jesus declared that would be the be the rock of the church in order to try to prevent him to do the very thing that will free and liberate individuals in the church. So what, what we see what Peter does and how Jesus responds is important because we know that it benefits the church that Jesus dies. But scholars also say that not only is the declaration of Jesus being the Son of God very much important that Peter has made, but Jesus is making this in an important location. Caesarea of Philippi was a place where it was the epicenter of worship for, for Baal. And other pagan gods. And so what he was trying to declare is that there was no other God that will be able to be resurrected from the dead like Christ. He is the true Messiah. And after establishing that, this is why it's important when he says, you are thinking uh, uh, but no, when he says in at the latter part of verse 23, he says, For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Immediately, he says, whoever comes after me must deny himself. Why is that important? Because the self-denial that he is trying to emphasize is a command. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. These are imperatives. That Jesus is trying to say that if you deny yourself on a daily basis from the things that you are so prone to cause your heart to to be prone to wonder, to cause you to fall into sin, to cause you not to necessarily desire God or live a life of worshiping Him, what has to be part of this command of self-denial is trying to Lay aside everything that so easily entangles you. I find that the Hebrew writer is being very particular when he says easily entangle you. Because there will be difficult things that will also entangle you. The easily entangled aspects of your life, you really have to say to yourself, is it Facebook, is it Instagram, is it Twitter, or is it, or is it trying to get, work so hard to make it to the next level in your job, or is it trying to hold up this particular image? What is it that is causing you a rift in your walk with the Lord? What is it that's causing you not to want to follow Him? What's it causing you, and you might say, Mike, I'm following Him, but what is it causing you to struggle? To the degree in which you question the Lord. Is it the easy, easy things that entangle you? Do y'all see what I'm saying this morning? If you're trekking with me, please just say amen. amen. That's all the brother needs, just amen. amen. But, but when, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's trying to deny yourself for the pleasures of your heart and trying to also protect your eyes. I mean, to be very practical, I want, you have to think about, we don't, I remember one man saying that we don't simply see adultery happen because someone plans to cheat on our wife or a, a woman plans to cheat on our husband. But adultery happens when there's a rift in the family and then that girl, if, if she simply compliments you and makes you feel uh, like, oh, you know, I'm respected or that man tries to speak 
compliments to you and your husband hasn't been treating you right. And so next thing you know, you're sleeping with someone else or you have an affinity, you have an emotional affair with someone else because you have not denied yourself. You're looking at everything else that people put on social media and you try to craft a life for yourself and your family to try to image something in particular. And the reason being is because you're not satisfied with where you are. You're trying so hard. And what I want to say to you is stop trying. Deny yourself. Because if you do so, it's a level in which you will have a self-discipline that actually doesn't make sense to people. I can say to a lot of young individuals who are trying to look for the next position, you may not necessarily need to take the next job offer. You may not necessarily need to take extra cash because you may have to deny yourself of envy and greed and coveting. You see what I'm saying? Like the, the fruits of the Spirit are so important to you living a life of gentleness, meekness, kindness, patience, and joy that, that causes you to deny the very things that will lure you in, that are good things, that will lure you in and deceive you. That's why I said the devil can use anything. So you have to be able to have caps on things that you know. But take up your cross. That's the other command. Taking up your cross is taking the responsibility. I I want to be very direct when I say this. Taking the responsibility of of being a member in the church. Taking your role and responsibility of bearing that cross. There was a spiritual reality in terms of bearing your cross and being a follower of Jesus. But after committing yourself to being a follower of Jesus, committing yourself to the body of Christ is also a commitment and is very important to us as believers. Because when we commit ourselves to the body of Christ, we are able to learn and teach. I think I told y'all a couple weeks ago, some of the most important people in my life have been Sunday school teachers have been elders and deacons, have been the people that's worked on the video and the audio in the church. The people that have been paramount in my life have been the the deacon who always shuts down the church and opens up the church, the one that has always been on call. Why have they been important? Because they showed me that being a part of God's church is taking up the responsibility of making sure they're serving God's body for the glory of God. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound sexy. I'm telling you, but it's a sacrifice. You may feel like you're losing something, but discipleship is costly. And then the last thing he says is, follow me. We know that Jesus is the way. And we know that he will protect us and that he will also guide us and shepherd us. And that is very much important because we don't want to follow anything that is going to divert our attention. God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. I remember being a part of an organization called uh, InterVarsity. And they asked me and someone else to come on and just be like the students that help with uh, large groups. And so one day they wanted to take us for training. And I really don't know how this mix-up happened. But after college was out, I don't think I went home. I think I went directly to Michigan. But, you know, the Nokia phones, y'all remember those Nokia phones, right? With, with the T9 or whatever, the 9T, whatever it is. And you were texting I thought I'd let my mother know that I wouldn't be coming home, but she didn't know. 
So I'm in the middle of nowhere in Michigan. I can't even remember where I was. I was by Lake Huron or something. I didn't even know where I was going. I didn't know that I was going to be sleeping in a cabin next to a lake in the middle of May. And it's still freezing. I just didn't have any understanding of that. I never went camping. I never did any of that stuff. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And so what, when I found myself out there, I was wandering in the woods and all of these different things that I've never tried in my life. And finding myself there, my mother also found me. And I really do not know how she found me. Because we didn't even have cell phone reception. But I was sitting in the cafeteria. This has been moments where, I mean, I'm singing in Spanish, Tay, Alabare, all of this stuff. Like, I'm having, having a good time. God is really being glorified. I'm being trained and discipled and all that good stuff. Right? And next thing you know, they say, Michael Davis, can you come to uh, this little side office? And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Your mother's on the phone. And I'm like, wow, how did she even find me? But the idea is that God will always find us. As long as we follow him, he will always find us. He will never let us go. But the fact of the matter is, if we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and walk with him, that Jesus will always be with his people, even in moments of suffering. I remember that discipleship oftentimes can be looked at as a knowledge-based or information-transferring discipleship. Some, some aspects of how we look at discipleship these days has been by reading and consuming material and trying to transfer, transfer information. But I also think that there's a level of sp- supernatural or mysterious aspects of discipleship that requires us to endure pain and suffering. There's no answer, there's no question, there's, I mean, there's no answer for it, there's no way we can figure it out, but we know that it is by God's glory that we are in His power that we can endure these aspects of discipleship. You may be saying, my God, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm supposed to know my five points of Calvinism. I'm supposed to understand the redemption of, and, of, of uh, an applied application of our redemption and, and how it's been accomplished. I'm supposed to understand these things. I, I, I I know you are, but I think that you're supposed to understand them in the context of who you know. Why is that important? Well, I remember being at the University of Missouri and Dr. Ellis Ingram, who was one of the first African Americans uh, who was a pathologist there, and he is now retired, he, and he was on the uh, he was an associate, senior associate as a dean at the School of Medicine. Very brilliant man and had a tremendous amount of influence on my life and many others. Uh, He and his wife had started a ministry called Granny's House. She was Granny and he was Poppy. And what they would do is they had rented out and reconstructed a whole part of the Columbia Housing Authority. And they would have all of the kids come from this area and we would do a ministry called Sons of the King. His demeanor was astounding. Simply because you know being around kids that they can drive you crazy. Patience are low. You may want to hit one of them. I'm not talking about child abuse. They may cause a level of frustration, etc. Right? But he always carried himself in a gentle and kind manner. His demeanor was God glorifying to me in a, in a serious way. Many of us asked ourselves, Dr. Ingram, you never seem to get frustrated. 
And kids will, will, will disrupt the meetings when we were teaching, etc. But he didn't get frustrated. He was calm and he was patient. He was compassionate, gracious, but yet firm. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't yell at the kids. He didn't shake them around. He didn't do any of that. And we say, how did you get, how, how did you, uh, how did you acquire such a calm demeanor? Is this just naturally being yourself? And he said, no. He let us know that he was, he was an individual that was uh, hot-tempered, never even killed. And that he would go off on someone in the drop of a hat. But what he said was, is that it took him through relationship and individuals in his life that he loved to help him calm his temper. I, y'all may not see, the because you don't know this individual, how important it is. But my point is that the way he discipled us, not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily by way in which he transferred knowledge. It was simply by him explaining his testimony. The reason I think that that's important, because with, when we look at our text, sharing our testimony through suffering is vital. Some of us work so hard in ministry trying to help other kids, trying to help women in sex trafficking, trying to help drug and alcoholics, trying to help homelessness. We're trying to serve in various different capacities. But you never tell your story. You struggle and you hide. Because you don't want, you, you, what you're, the way you're trying to compensate is working so hard to serve someone else. But you don't have to do that. The power of liberation is in the moment in which you acknowledge the one you know, not how much you know. And when you understand it, you demonstrate a level of transparency that frees you from the shame and the guilt that oftentimes cripple us. You don't have to be the best mother. You don't have to be the best father. You don't have to be the best employee. You got to do is let people know that you're broken, and that's beauty in your brokenness. And you may say, Mike, where is this in the text, and how do we see this? Is this when Jesus is calling us to suffer? Well, He's calling us not to save our own souls. Where He says right here in verse 26, where He says, I'm 25, He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. The more that we try to hide. The more that we try to save our own lives, the more that we try to seek meaning, uh, meaningfulness, and we try to seek hope for our own self, the more that we will lose our lives. But when we lose our lives, we find it. And so when we give control over to God, when we understand that there's no amount of resources, there's no amount of material gain, there's nothing because this is what he says in verse 26, for who, for what will it profit a man for he gains the whole world but forfeit his soul. Or, what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing. God is all sufficient. He is all powerful. And acknowledging that allows us not only to deny ourselves and to suffer, but to see his glory. To see the Father's glory is important. Because there's a level of his glorification that is unmatched. We see this in the next couple of verses, 27 and 28, that there is no amount of money or worldly gain that is comparable to God's glory. 
And that the Son of God, even in His humiliation, is in which He is still giving God's glory. He had to suffer the trough in order to be seated on the throne. He had to suffer the crown of thorns in order to behold the crown of righteousness. The reason that's important is because we understand that God in His fullness tries to show us His glory not through the most beautiful aspects. That is to come. And we're waiting for that. That's the tension that we're in in the already but not yet. I remember when I was in elementary school and my sister, I think I was in elementary school, but I know my sister, I tried to stand up for my sister. And it was, we were all walking home from school. And uh, I was in the back and I was with my friends and then my sister said, well, I'm going to get my brother. And I turned around and she said, she'd come and get me. And there's this girl, she's probably like 6'5", six, 6'8". Maybe 250 pounds. She was like LeBron James before LeBron James. And I said, okay, uh, what, you know, what's going on? You talking to my sister crazy? And she said, what? Slap. That's it. She slapped me. And I, and I, I was just taken aback. Because I'm like, I really can't fight her. She's too big. So I said, Bianca, we just going to go home. I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying to y'all is that Jesus doesn't just go home. The devil thought he, the devil thought he had him fooled. The devil thought that he could hold him down in a grave. There was a, a an, an, an image, this image, in which I would never be able to redeem myself by being slapped by a six eight lady. But God, in His fullness of His glory, is able to redeem the death in which the devil thought he had him captivated. That is the picture of the gospel in which we can not redeem ourselves, but God in the fullness of his glory and his authority can. How in his authority? Because he can wipe every tear away. How in his authority? Because there will never be any more tears. There will never be any more death. There will never be any more mourning. There will never be any more crying. There will never be any more pain. There will never be another moment in which we will have to fight for justice. There will never be another moment where we have to fight for equality. There will never be another moment where we be frustrated with public policy or politics. There will be never a moment in which we are frustrated with the disparities in our economic system or in our education system. There will be another moment where we're not, uh, we're not divided, we're not, we're not fighting because of race and ethnicity. There won't be any of those moments because by His authority and the fullness of His glory, He will make all things new. Revelations 21 and 4. We are waiting for that day. We get excited for that moment because the reward is not just the fact that he is giving them individually. The reward, most importantly, is the fact that we're in his presence. We long to be in his presence. We long to be disciples of Christ, which require us to lose something. And so this morning, I don't want us to lose out on the fact that we're going into another year. And that we're called to follow Him. And as we're called to follow Him, there are things that we need to lay down. Burdens on our hearts. Sufferings that we've been through. And I'd like for us to take a moment, if you want to pray in your own season, I would call the elders up uh, as well. To pray for people. Those who have desired and are crushed by life 
who desire prayer and are crushed by life, who are going through a substantial amount of pain, or who simply know that they may not have been following Jesus. I just invite you up to come and pray and allow this coming to be one in which you look for the ultimate coming. The ultimate second coming. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Jesus, that you are one who has come not necessarily to show off all of your glory. But you've come to save a people in order for us to reveal your glory. And that is so important. Because sometimes... We get caught up in our own lives. We get caught up in our own desires and selfishness. But Lord Jesus, help us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.